What's your problem? What's your solution? This is an interview series about making the world a better place. Global warming is considered the biggest problem of the world. To solve that problem, it seems we first need to address another challenge, the failing of democracy. Ernst Ulrich von Weizsäcker has had a prominent career in science and politics as a pioneer of sustainability. Ernst Ulrich von Weizsäcker is a statesman who knows that humanity can only truly achieve sustainable, just and inclusive societies when people are willing and able to leave their dualistic perspectives behind. Welcome to Camp Solutions. Almost 30 years ago, you were the founding president of an environmental think tank, the Wuppertal Institute. What was the reason behind the Institute at the time? Why was it established? It was in North Rhine-Westphalia, a region in Germany, which had been flourishing over 100 years, but was on the downturn lately. And the then prime minister, Johannes Rau thought we need think tanks doing the unusual things that typically are left aside by universities. And he had the idea of doing one big think tank on work and science and future, one on civilization, philosophy, and one on climate. And he realized that there might be a conflict between the coal regions in North Australia and climate. And he needed the think tank to somehow think and perhaps mediate at some stage what is the best for all. So the environmental perspective, even climate, was already on the radar when that institute was established. Um, what was your, I mean, your background is physics and biology, I believe. And, and so were you at that time already aware of the challenge that climate change was posing? Or if not, when, when did that come into your life, so to say? In the 1980s, I was director of the Institute for European Environmental Policy. And during that time, I was reading in the newspapers and then hearing from friends of mine that scientists had found out a near perfect positive correlation of 160,000 years between carbon dioxide concentrations and temperatures. So they really went hand in hand. Yeah. And this was the scientific proof that additional carbon dioxide emissions and concentrations would change climate. And then the German parliament, the Bundestag, created a commission of inquiry mm -hmm. on climate questions. And of course, I was asked by some of the um, actors in the commission what I was thinking about the European environmental policy dimension for yes. doing something about climate. And during that time, this Prime Minister Johannes Rau, whom I knew before, said, oh, this is perhaps the guy for 
leading the new institute in Wuppertal. And then uh, I ultimately agreed, but said climate alone is not good enough. We need more. We need energy, transport, and in particular also material turnover. So we had divisions on climate, on energy, on transport, and on materials. And then a separate cross-cutting division on new models of life. So you spent a long career in basically two fields, in uh, science, as we just talked about science, but also politics as a member of, of parliament. If you look at the challenge that we face today as a human global civilization and climate change, what do we need more, science or politics? We need cooperation between the two. And when I was member of parliament, I was full of admiration for those scientists who understood the working of politics. We need a combination between the two. Politicians understanding science well enough on climate, for instance, on biodiversity and other things, and scientists formulating their findings in a way that makes sense for politicians, including being serious, not only on analytics, but also on solutions. It seems very hard to get to an understanding or agreement between even different parties within the same country, let alone between different countries within the global community. So what's wrong there? What, why, why are we so very you know, unsuccessful in getting to the very solutions we all need ultimately? There is a statistics that is repeatedly published in the World Energy Outlook about public money subsidizing the use of energy, making energy unnecessarily cheap. In particular, those subsidies are high if the people are uh, rebellious. And to keep them quiet, the best is to feed them with cheap energy. So it's a political thing to do the wrong thing. It may be good for the existing uh, politicians because the people are happy with that situation, but future generations will be very, very angry about this laziness. Your most recent book, Come On, addresses this very issue. So how can we find an answer to this challenge? It's not so easy to answer. I mean, half of the book, the second half of the book, is full of practical things that we can do now, including regenerative agriculture, regenerative cities, and many such things. And of course, the factor five, factor 10 improvements of energy efficiency, this is all there. It can be just picked out and done. But before that, we say, in the first part, Current trends worldwide are non-sustainable. They lead into destruction of the earth. And the second part says, we must not stick to the outdated philosophies stemming from the empty world. When 
human population was small and nature was big. That was the empty world. Today we are living in the full world with huge population and nature shrinking. So we need a new philosophy. We even say a new enlightenment for the situation of the full world. But only after having said that, we then become pragmatic again for what we can do now. But the implicit message, doing just what you can do now, will not solve the problem unless and until we really change our minds away from just selfishness, rationalism, utilitarianism, etc., to something um, of more balance. For instance, balance between short-term and long-term. Today's pragmatists are always short-term and are proud of it. And that's crazy. It may destroy the long term, but they don't even notice. So today's economy tries to persuade everybody that the only real satisfaction is luxury. That's wrong. We know that is wrong. So understanding that happiness and satisfaction and thinking of grandchildren is something very satisfying. So finding balance today um, between all these opposing views is, is far more difficult and requires a different, less dualistic approach, I suppose, than the, the old Enlightenment gave us. I believe that there is a major difference between Western civilizations and Asian civilizations. If we hear about um, a quarrel. Our typical uh, imagination is that, well, one of the guys is right, the other is wrong, and search for truth means that the one who is right is beating the one who is wrong. This is a dualistic kind of yeah. uh, truth search. If exactly the same quarrel is presented to a Chinese or a Japanese or uh, Indian or so, his or her first assumption is, of course, both are right. The yin-yang kind of structure of truth. Yeah. And so we in the West have to learn from the East. But we are so arrogant that we never, never think of that. On the other hand, it was essentially the West which had this explosion of knowledge I mean, today, Silicon Valley uh, companies or so are doing things that would be difficult to imagine emerging from Shanghai or from uh, Delhi. So, again, that's, just, that's a matter of balance. The party politics means that if I am representing party A and, and, and you are from party B and you come up with a plan, then I will most definitely say, you know, I'm against that plan because I'm not party B and party A. How do you overcome that problem, which is everywhere in each parliament? Today's problem is that the world is ruled by the financial markets. 
They always want to maximize returns on investment. And if returns on investment in Italy are less than, say, in Germany or in New Zealand, I don't know, um, they will not invest in, in Italy. And Italy slides into a crisis. Before 1990, this would have been impossible. So this arrogance of capital is part of the problem and part of the answer to your question. Um, what do we do with parties uh, of different opinions? Momentarily, I see hardly any party seriously working on re-regulating financial markets. The deregulated financial markets are so brutally powerful that they have to, need, they have to be re-regulated. That then leads to a motto for the coalition of the willing to say we are willing to move towards prices more or less telling the truth, the ecological truth. Those who have already, as pioneers, introduced prices telling the ecological truth will be the winners, not the losers. Business is the problem, I can argue. Whatever destruction is happening in the environment, in the environment is mostly led by business. So, can business also be the solution? Business can absolutely be the solution. Business is full of inventions, of innovations. But the state, the public sector, has to set the frame so that those in business make more money who do the right things. And those lose money who do the wrong things in terms of nature. Knowing what you know, can you still be optimistic about the outcome? Well, first I would say being pessimistic about the outcome doesn't make things better. And second, I, I'm delighted uh, when talking with engineers what they can do once the frame is correct. They can do, I mean, a 20-fold increase of energy efficiency would make it easily possible to do away with all coal burning, all nuclear, and actually less renewable energies than we need now. If you let the engineers do it, it's fine. But now the um, business people say, well, we may lose money uh, if we uh, completely go into solar. So, and uh, uh, then the coal uh, countries uh, like uh, Poland, Kazakhstan, uh, or whatever, they don't want to join. So we have to, to buy them in. Uh, all this kind of thing has to be done by politics, not by scientists alone. What is your problem? Two little friends going in the direction that will be good for nature and good for future generations. And what's your solution? If we can agree on the synergies lying in resource productivity, doing better convenience, better satisfaction, with a lot less energy, water, minerals, etc. Technically, this is possible. And uh, 
uh, I want to persuade the engineering community that this is what we should be after. So you were in parliament and still, I suppose, a socialist, a social democrat. And that is a word, especially for all those people watching this who uh, come from the United States, that people don't easily understand. So why are you a social democrat? Well, in the 19th century, when social democracy was born, it was an absolute necessity against the cruel situation of the working class. And nowadays, the topics have changed. Social justice is still very important, in particular under the extraordinary strength of the financial markets. But also environment, long-termism, peace, uh, common understanding, a civilization that carries all those uh, political things, positive things. And uh, it is less of a clash as it has been in the 19th century between social democrats and conservatives. In many cases, we have the same goal with slightly different methods. And uh, uh, so I see no reason why we should abandon uh, the social democratic tradition, but we would not call it socialist and certainly not bureaucratic. It is more freedom, uh, stimulating invention, stimulating uh, innovation, and thereby absorbing many of the virtues of the right-wing parties. Will the environment benefit from a more inclusive society? I should say yes. In particular, it can be observed that today's destruction of nature hits the poor much worse than the rich. The rich can escape to the left islands of intact nature, and the poor can't. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Building coalitions of the willing is a pragmatic and realistic solution to lead humanity to a better future. This was Camp Solutions. See you next time.